0: So last week, we heard the story of the first African convert, a high-ranking Ethiopian official. And I love hearing about the different ways that God works in people's lives. No two stories are the same. For everybody who's given their life to Jesus, there is a different story to tell. Well, today we've heard the story of Saul's conversion. Saul, who went on to become known as the Apostle Paul, probably the most famous conversion in the history of the church. Uh, When we consider who Paul was, how he met with Jesus, and what happened afterwards, it really is the most phenomenal story. Uh, Saul's conversion is so interesting that Luke describes it three times in the book of Acts. There's the description that we've read today, which is uh, Luke's narrative, and then twice more we hear the story as part of the Apostle Paul's speeches, And this, uh, again, uh, sets a precedent, doesn't it? Last week we were talking about sharing our testimonies, talking about what God has done in our lives. Well, that's something that the Apostle Paul did when he was telling people the good news about Jesus. So today we're going to consider the facts of Saul's conversion and we're going to look at the impact that it had. Because although Saul's conversion is particularly dramatic and in many ways unusual, It's also, in many other ways, very normal. Uh, So let's start by asking who Saul was. Well, he's introduced to us at the end of Acts 7, and we see that he was present at Stephen's execution. I say execution, but it was more of a a mob killing, a lynching. Uh, And then at the beginning of Acts 8, it says that Saul approved of Stephen's death. Another two verses on... And Saul has started to destroy the church. And the word that's used for destroy appears in Psalm 80 and describes a herd of wild boar devastating a vineyard. And that's a very graphic image of what Saul was doing to the church. Uh, Saul was a very strict Pharisee and he was determined to prevent uh, Christianity from polluting Judaism he would have been very aware of Jesus. Uh, he would have known about Jesus' teaching. He would have heard about the crucifixion if he didn't actually see it. Uh, he would have known that uh, there was a claim that Jesus had risen from the dead, and he could see that the church was growing rapidly in Jerusalem. As far as Saul was concerned, this Jesus movement was a very serious threat to Judaism. Judaism. And there's no doubt that Saul thought that he was doing God's work, as have countless other bullies, tyrants, and megalomaniacs throughout history. At the beginning of today's reading, it says that Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. As far as he was concerned, apostates, converts from Judaism to Christianity, deserved death. Saul was a total fanatic. Ironically, it was persecution that triggered the rapid expansion of the church because those Christians that were persecuted were fleeing far and wide and taking the good news of Jesus with them. And One of the places they fled to was Damascus, which had a sizable Jewish population. I read that there were 40 synagogues in Damascus at the time. So Paul got permission from the high priest to go to Damascus arrest the Christians, bring them back to Jerusalem, and put them on trial. It was the ancient equivalent of an extradition order. So you can see that Saul was zealous, he was committed, he was hell-bent on this self-appointed mission. And there's no doubt that he was sincere in his belief. It's funny, isn't it? We normally consider sincerity to be a good thing. But that rather depends on the belief That is sincerely held. It is possible to be sincerely wrong. Uh, ISIS, who marauded their way through Iraq and um, Syria, attempting to establish an Islamic uh, caliphate, they were sincere in their belief, but I think we can see that they were sincerely wrong. Saul thought he was doing God's work when he was, in fact, perpetrating a horrendous, Evil. So here we have the most unlikely convert. You couldn't get someone more opposed to uh, Christianity than Saul. And yet, this person who was willing to go to the most extreme measures to prevent Christianity from spreading actually became the person who was most responsible for spreading it. I wonder do you know anyone who is hostile? towards christianity we'll keep loving them keep praying for them when the situation arises share the gospel with them because there is always hope uh, saul's story shows us that no one is beyond god's grace god changes lives god changes lives and the conversion of saul partially reveals the extent of god's mercy and grace Mercy is withholding punishment that's deserved. Grace is giving that which is undeserved. In Christ, we are recipients of God's mercy and grace. Instead of receiving the punishment that we deserve for our sin, we inherit the kingdom of heaven. And if God would do that for Saul, God would do that for us. God would do that for anyone. Uh, There's that hymn, to God be the glory, and there's a line that goes, the vilest offender who truly believes, that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. The vilest offender. Anyone can receive forgiveness if they truly turn to Christ. When I first started to get to grips with the gospel, I struggled to believe that God's grace is sufficient. I thought, well, there must be people out there who are so evil that God could never accept them. But the truth is, anyone who truly repents can find forgiveness in Christ. Anyone. And Saul, the very person who violently persecuted the church, was not only accepted but he was used by God in the most powerful way. In verse 15, God says to Ananias, he says, this man, Saul, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Saul completely changed. The direction of his life turned through 180 degrees, and that's what repentance is. Repentance is where we're going in one direction, away from God, and we turn and we begin to move towards God. That's what Saul did, but how did it happen? Well, every conversion is different. Uh, But Saul's conversion was very different, which isn't surprising given the task that he'd been set aside for. He was traveling to Damascus to destroy the church there uh, when all of a sudden there was a bright light from heaven. Paul later described it uh, as being brighter than the sun and he was thrown to the ground. Could have been thrown from a horse, maybe he was walking and, and was thrown down. And he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he replied, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus doesn't say, why are you persecuting my followers? Jesus identifies himself with the church. If you're persecuting the church, you're persecuting Jesus. And we see a similar theme in Matthew 25, don't we? When Jesus said, whatever you did for for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You gave that person a a cup of water, you did that for me. You visited that person in prison, you did that for me. You clothed that person, you did that for me. Jesus identifies himself with the church that Saul is persecuting. And then Saul is told to go on to the city uh, and await further instructions. He stands up, he opens his eyes, he realizes that he's blind. Of course, all this is highly unusual Uh, Though I have heard of people, um, particularly in Islamic countries, to whom Jesus has appeared in a dream or a vision. So these things do still happen today, but it has to be said that most conversions are not quite so dramatic. And even with those that are, there's normally some kind of process that precedes that dramatic turning point. We might be inclined to look at Saul's conversion and think that it was all very sudden, and certainly his... Um, experience on the road to Damascus was sudden. But when we look at Paul's own account of this event uh, that he gives to King Agrippa, you can read about it in Acts 26, uh, we see that even Saul's conversion involved some kind of process. In Acts 24 verse 14, uh, Paul includes a fuller version of what Jesus said to him. And Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? it is hard for you to kick against the goads. To kick against the goads was a common expression used in farming. And we all know that animals can be stubborn and immovable. Uh, I was once uh, milking a yak in Mongolia, of all things, and uh, the yak started to move away from me. So I kind of put my hand over the top of it and was trying to pull it back towards uh, where I sat on this little stool. And Of course, yaks are pretty heavy, strong animals. I had no impact on it at all. It just wouldn't budge, and all the locals were just laughing their heads off at me because it would have been much easier to move the stall towards a yak, but I didn't think of that. Um, So we know that when an animal doesn't want to move, it doesn't move. And when farmers used to plough with a yoke of oxen, as they still do in some parts of the world, uh, there would be days when the uh, oxen decided that they weren't going to plough, thank you very much, they were not going to move forwards. So they devised an ingenious device to get the oxen to move forwards, uh, which was basically just a pointy stick called a goad. Uh, but the most stubborn and spirited animals, when they're jabbed with that pointy stick, they still wouldn't move forwards. They'd just kick backwards. They'd kick against the goads, hence the expression. The fact that Saul had been kicking against the goads implies that the Lord was trying to nudge him in the right direction, and he'd been resisting. So what were the goads that Saul was kicking against? How was the Lord trying to move him in a different direction? Well, firstly, I think perhaps his own doubts, his conscience, the prompting of the Holy Spirit, particularly when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. Saul was a contemporary of Jesus. They were about the same age. Saul was based in Jerusalem, where Jesus spent a lot of time. Jesus preached in the temple there. I'd be very surprised if Saul hadn't met Jesus and almost certainly he would have heard Jesus preach. Uh, That would have to have a tremendous impact on him. And as I've said, Saul was aware of the crucifixion. He, He was aware that a lot of people were saying that Jesus had been raised from the dead. He was aware that the church was growing in Jerusalem. So could it be that behind all his fanaticism, he had doubts about Jesus's true identity? the Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung said that fanaticism is only found in individuals who are compensating secret doubts. And I think it's often the case that those who are most vehemently opposed to Christianity are those who fear that it could be true. And I say fear because not everyone wants to believe that Christianity is true. Not everybody wants Christianity to be true. Personally, I feel more concerned for people who are indifferent who don't seem to have any strong feelings about Christianity either way. Someone who might say, well, you know, it's good for you that you found faith and, you know, I can see it's a good influence in your life, but it's not my kind of thing. Indifference. Hostility can often be an indication that God is doing something in a person's life. And indifference sometimes signifies the opposite. That's not a hard and fast rule, but I've often noticed that that's the case. So I think it's likely that Saul had his doubts, and that was one of the goads, as it were. And I think the other one had to do with Stephen's death. We know that Saul was present, and uh, Saul and eventually the Apostle Paul, we know he's a really thoughtful person, and it would be impossible for anyone that thoughtful to witness something like Stephen's death and not be deeply moved by it. Uh, It's possible that Saul heard Stephen preaching in the synagogue. It's very likely that Saul uh, heard Stephen's address to the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, uh, when Luke tells us that Stephen's face shone like the face of an angel. That would certainly be something to behold. Uh, Certainly, he witnessed Stephen's death. So he would have heard Stephen claim to see Jesus. He would have heard Stephen praying in his last moments for those who attacked him, praying for the people that stoned him, praying that they'd be forgiven. I mean, all of this combined is a very powerful witness, isn't it? Maybe these events were one of the goads that Saul was kicking against. He saw the evidence, but he was doing his utmost to deny it. But you know, even uh, Christians kick against the goads from time to time. I say from time to time to be generous. I think we actually do it quite a lot. God speaks to us in so many ways. Do you ever feel that you are kicking against the goads, that you are ignoring the nudge that God is giving you? Uh, Advice from a godly friend, a a certain passage, a, a sermon, a set of circumstances that ought to prompt you to change, but you're not changing. Do you ever feel that God is giving you a nudge, pointing you with a with a pokey stick, with a goad, and you're ignoring it. Actually, I think the analogy breaks down a little bit because God is normally surprisingly gentle with us. But sometimes, if we don't take the hint, he does bring us down to earth with a bump, as he did with Saul in a literal way as well as a metaphorical way. But God did finally get Saul's attention. So let's see what happened. What were the results of Saul's conversion? And we ought to pay careful attention to these because these are the things that should result from every conversion, including our own. And the first result is obedience. When Paul, uh, later on in the book of Acts, when we see he's arrested in Jerusalem, and he told the story of his conversion, and the first thing he said to Jesus after he'd established who it was he was talking to He said, what shall I do, Lord? What shall I do? Paul was on a very clear mission. He had a plan. He was going to destroy the church. He was tunnel visioned. And yet when he met Jesus, he dropped that plan immediately. He wanted to know what he must do for Jesus. Someone once said that we cannot say, thy kingdom come, until we first say, my kingdom go. Giving our lives to Christ means exactly that. Our lives are no longer our own. We belong to Jesus. And we must ascertain what he wants us to do with our lives. Galatians 2 verse 20 says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Saul's conversion resulted in obedience. And obedience to Christ leads to the most fulfilling, meaningful, fruitful and full life that it's possible to have. That doesn't mean an easy life. Life might in some cases still be very difficult, but certainly a fulfilling life, a life that has real purpose. Another result of Paul's conversion was acceptance. After his Damascus Road experience, he went to stay with Judas on Straight Street. Uh, If you think the roads in Springfield are unimaginatively named then you can see that it's not a new phenomenon because i think Straight Street is up there with Healthcare Drive and Education City and all those other very unimaginatively named places in Springfield but anyway Saul was staying there and he sent Ananias to him and Ananias was understandably nervous uh, this was like a, a Syrian Christian being sent to minister to an Islamic state commander And Ananias even questions God about this. He says, are you sure you want me to go to this guy? I've heard that he's been doing some really bad things. And God says, go. So Ananias goes to the house. He sees Saul sitting there. He's blind and he lays his hands on him. And he says, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Isn't it wonderful that likely the first word that Saul heard from a Christian after his Damascus Road experience was the word brother. He had been accepted by Jesus, and so he'd been accepted into God's family, the church, as is everyone who turns to Christ. The church should be a place where people can move on from their past, where everyone is equally loved and accepted where no one is judged or stigmatized that's how it should be when I met Tissa I'd recently given my life to Christ at the age of 28 and to say that I had a colorful past would be putting it very mildly and as I as our relationship developed I actually became very fearful Um, we were getting closer And I knew that Tissa would eventually ask the kind of questions that I didn't really want to answer. Uh, I thought that if she knew my whole story, then that would be it. The relationship would be over. That's what I thought. And so I made a deal with God. Well, that's what I thought I was doing. Uh, And I said, Lord, I will never lie to this woman. But what I want you to do is make sure that she doesn't ask the kind of questions that would make me want to lie. And I felt much better. I thought, "Okay, that's it. That's sorted. But of course, eventually those questions did come. And inside, I was shaking my fist at God and saying, hang on a minute, Lord, this isn't how it was supposed to happen. This isn't what we agreed. But I answered uh, the questions truthfully. And there was a long pause. And at the end of it, I said, how does that change things between us? And I honestly thought that that would be it. And uh, Tissa said, it doesn't change anything. You're telling me about the man that you were, and I love the man that you are. And when you hear that from one of God's children, it's like hearing it from God. And you understand what it is to be accepted. Everyone in the church should experience that level of acceptance. When Ananias addressed Paul as brother, he was saying the same kind of thing. He was saying, I recognize that... That in Christ, you are a new person. You are part of this family. You are my brother. And then presumably Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit because that's what Ananias said, didn't he? You know That he'd lay his hands on so that Saul would get back his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we looked at this a few weeks ago, that every Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit lives within us. And if we walk in step with that Spirit, if we cooperate, With God's Spirit, then we will undergo a lifelong process of change and transformation as we become more like Christ. And then we see that Saul's eyes were opened, verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. What happened to Saul in a physical way happens to all of us in a spiritual way when we turn to Christ. When Saul's sight returned, he was seeing the world in a whole new light. It was as if he was seeing everything as it really is for the first time. Because of Jesus, our eyes are open to the truth and the wonder and the reality of the gospel. And we see the world differently. We're given a new perspective. And I think that perspective changes as we progress on our Christian walk. So Saul's conversion was certainly uh, unusual. But in many ways, it was and still is the norm. The grace of God is such that he reaches out to us in spite of the fact that our lives are steeped in sin. He prompts us, calls us, nudges us, makes himself known to us. And when we turn to him, he accepts us, fills us with the Holy Spirit, changes us, and uses us in his sovereign plan. That is what happened to Saul. And that is the norm. That is what happens when people turn to Christ. So that is the redemptive power of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that all of us have fallen short of your glory. And we need a savior. We need Jesus. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that no matter what lies in our past, when we turn to you, we have a very different future. We thank you that our past can be effectively erased and that you look upon us in the same way as you look upon your son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace. Thank you, Father, that you change lives. And we pray that you continue by your spirit to change us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.